Have we talked enough about C.S. Lewis at Lorehaven? Of course we haven't. So let's get ready for more C.S. Lewis discussion. This week, tomorrow in fact, Wednesday, November 29th, marks a new occasion called C.S. Lewis Reading Day. It's been founded by the Pints with Jack podcast to celebrate our favorite quotes and fantasy and nonfiction by the famed scholar of medieval literature and languages, plus the author of fantastical Christian-made fantasy. Today, we tour our shelves full of Lewis's work and we ask, which of his books and essays are the best? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the not-quite-renaissance podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stever Burnett, a semi-professional Lewis fan, the publisher of Lorehaven, and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I have a conspiracy theory that JFK was assassinated to cover up the death of C.S. Lewis, who died on the same day. And this is episode 189. What are the best books by C.S. Lewis? Almost exactly 60 years ago this month, if the news item that I recently saw is correct, and I'm pretty sure it is, Zach has a full shelf of C.S. Lewis stuff, and I also have a towering stack of C.S. Lewis books, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but trust me, they're there, and that's not even including my copies of the Ransom Trilogy and I think two complete sets of the Narnia series that are back in my bookshelf in the main office. This is going to be a fun one going over C.S. Lewis's best nonfiction essays, uh, his books, and uh, of course, his fantastical stories in that order. We're going to save the Narnia talk uh, for the latter part of the show because we already talk a lot about Narnia. Both of Zach and I have accepted Aslan as our personal lion and savior. <laughs> so we're going to Aslan's country when we die. Yeah, Stephen, I have been collecting up a lot of C.S. Lewis books in recent years and familiarizing myself with the books and essays that you've known for a while, but that are new to me. Uh, I spent a lot of years just rereading uh, some of his classic nonfiction books, and I'm also very new to his fiction. I didn't read any of this as uh, as a young lad or as even a young adult. It's It's been uh, in midlife, I guess, that I've discovered a lot of Lewis's stories and his books about stories and his books about writing stories. So uh, this is going to be a fun romp through the bookshelf. I'm making it my goal to collect every single one of his books in one form or another, or often multiple forms, because it's fun to just collect different editions. That is a lot of books and a lot of letters. I think by now, uh, I mean, the Tolkien estate seems to have gone through every scrap of paper that the professor wrote in the uh, creation of Middle Earth. But I think by now, uh, Lewis's materials have all been published, although maybe they'll find uh, something under the floorboard somewhere. And then we'll get that published as well. I always wonder, Zach, about someone like a C.S. Lewis or a J.R.R. Tolkien. If they were still around, would they want all of those things published? Like, I can think about some stuff that even if I got rich and famous and powerful and creative, like, I don't want everything published. Like, those original manuscripts, they can just stay in the rusted metal filing cabinet. But we're going to deal with the best of the best today in our tour of Lewis's work. First, however, I'm thinking about Talking Horses of Narnia, but in our top sponsor, the horses don't talk, but they do have certain elemental powers. That's our top sponsor, Enclave Publishing, with the new book now released of Sea and Smoke by Jillian Bronte Adams. It is book two of the Fireborn Epic series. He rides a sea blood, a steed of salt and spray born to challenge the tides. Six years ago, the wrong brother survived, and nothing will ever convince Rafi Titrani otherwise. But he is done running from his past and from the truth. 
As civil war threatens Caridwin's tenuous rule in Sildonia, Rafi vows to fight the usurper sitting on the imperial throne of Nadar, even if it means shouldering his brother's responsibilities as the Empire's lost heir. Enclave Escape presents Of Sea and Smoke, the Fireborn Epic Book 2 by Jillian Bronte Adams. It's an exciting young adult adventure, and it went on sale November 21st, wherever great YA books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook on CD from Amazon and in digital format on Audible, Spotify, and through libraries everywhere. You can see that excellent cover and get all of the links in our show notes for episode 189 this episode. Or for this and all the other sponsors of this episode, go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, let's head straight for the more obscure end of the shelf and ask what are C.S. Lewis's best nonfiction essays? And I've been reading Lewis for quite some time, uh, certainly not the Lewis scholar that others may be, but there are so many quotes and books and collections that leap to mind uh, when I ask this question. Uh, one of those quotes is actually Lewis's thoughts on the weight of glory, where he's talking about the fact that he used to have an issue with God commanding praise of himself as a young convert or before he became a Christian. Lewis thought that is so arrogant of God uh, to tell people uh, to praise him, to exalt his name and all of the other commands that you get in the Psalms until Lewis said, and here's a paraphrase that I'll start off here. Uh, C.S. Lewis realized that this is just basic human behavior. When you see something beautiful, when you see something wonderful, you stand at the, at the edge of a magnificent canyon or, or you're seeing a beautiful sunset, there is an impulse of overflowing joy that makes you want to turn to someone and say, did you see that? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it breathtaking? And Lewis asks, why wouldn't God be the same way only about himself? Uh, God is the most wonderful, breathtaking, beautiful entity in the universe, uh, infinite in all of his attributes, why wouldn't God want to share himself with his people? I'm paraphrasing heavily there, but that's one of the quotes from Lewis's essays that have helped me so much. Uh, one of the books here, um, actually, this one has kind of an old cover here. Here, see, it's an actual book I'm holding in front of the microphone called uh, God in the Dock, Essays on Theology and Ethics. Now, that sounds like something you'd get in the most boring high school class imaginable. But uh, my memory here is that this is actually, um, oh, here, this one has his essay, Meditation in a Tool Shed. That's the one where Lewis talks about uh, being stuck in a dark tool shed uh, and looking at the beam of light coming through the crack in the wall. I think we've talked about this on the show before. And Lewis talking about how you can look at the light from uh, outside the beam of light and you see like the dust motes floating around in it and it really doesn't illuminate anything. But then if you look along the beam and you see through the crack in the wall outside the tool shed uh, to the sun shining outside, uh, suddenly the world is illuminated. And there's so many other wonderful thoughts about that that I think are life-changing and are um, altogether biblical uh, throughout Lewis's essay collections. But there's some obscure stuff in here. In fact, I think it's this book uh, that is going to inspire uh, very likely a future episode of this podcast just in a few weeks about what Lewis thought about Christmas. Uh, there's a satirical essay in here about Xmas, where Lewis goes full Scrooge, uh, not about the nativity, but about this, uh, this other mutant holiday uh, that some authorities somewhere have decided to hold alongside the celebration of the nativity, which Lewis uh, sardonically called Xmas. And you send Christmas cards to each other and you go out in the slush and snow and become miserable and you get into the gift-giving rat race, and Lewis just goes full crankcase about it, and I love it, uh, even though I'm not so uh, 
uh, down on the holiday tradition, traditions as he is. That's another one of my favorite essays just in this collection. And then the last one here is actually an obscure one. Um, it's actually kind of at the edge of my memory here, where Lewis is talking about scientifiction, which is what they used to call science fiction. And it becomes very clear in here what inspired Lewis to try his hand at the Ransom Trilogy or Cosmic Trilogy or Space Trilogy, if you have to go there. Uh, Lewis applies his medieval cosmology uh, to the spheres beyond Earth and, and creates this whole other fantasy world set in, quote, this world, end quote. And you see what gave him the idea, because it's very clear in this um, on the record discussion that Lewis has with other uh, author friends, their hopes for the mature, uh, the maturity of scientific fiction. Uh, they know that it's pulp. Uh, they know that a lot of it isn't very good, uh, but they're optimistic about this then new genre uh, that it's going to develop a literary depth and quality and get a little more ambitious about the exploring human nature. And it seems really clear from here that Lewis himself was subscribing to sci-fi pulp magazines, uh, which is not something that I see talked about often. Uh, I wonder maybe if people would be a little bit embarrassed about that. Uh, and then that makes me wonder, like, what kinds of pulpy magazines would Lewis have had? Um, we should do a whole episode about that essay. But it's also notable because there's literally a part in the, I guess, it's a transcript of a record. Uh, where someone's asking Lewis, say, what, what do I do with the ash in my pipe? And Lewis says, just drop it on the floor. Uh, so you get just this really human moment and kind of a disgusting moment and a, um, a snapshot of his era and his personality where you're just dropping this gross stuff on the floor and expecting, I don't know, the maid or someone to clean it up. Uh, but I've talked on enough about that. Uh, Zach, are there any particular Lewis nonfiction essays uh, that are your favorite or uh, from which uh, the quotes have really inspired you? Yep, I'm also flipping my uh, personal uh, paper copy here. This is Lewis's book on stories and other essays on literature. And there's an essay in here that I, I think about a lot. And I've, I've underlined so many things in here. It's called On Science Fiction. And so mostly it's about the value of science fiction and why we need it. And we've covered that on this podcast. Go back to uh, episode 52. Do Christians really need science fiction? But uh, a lot of what I said in that episode was, was based on this essay. But I want to read some quotes here. This uh, Lewis says, It would seem from the reactions it produces that the mythopoeic is rather, for good or ill, a mode of imagination which does something to us at a deep level. If some seem to go to it in almost compulsive need, others seem to be in terror of what they may meet there. So he had talked earlier in this passage about a woman that he asked like, Hey, do you ever read, you know, read fairy tales? And she's like, I loathe them. <laughs> and he just can't really, um, you know, Lewis has a hard time like sympathizing with that, but he's, he's recognizing it that there are people that just, uh, can't imagine why anyone would read these books, which I imagine you, our dear listener, have never had that thought. Um, Lewis also just lists out a lot of um, science fiction that was coming out at the time that he wrote this. And I've written so many notes on the margin. I need to read this, read this, read this. Lewis, uh, in fact, there's a book that I just, I noticed in the bookstore the other day called Flatland that, that Lewis uh, talks about in this essay. Uh, so it's definitely giving me a reading list. He he goes into different types of science fiction, like futuristic, dysto what we call you know dystopian. He gives some a little bit of advice about writing science fiction, which I won't go to. But here's a quote that I've read before. He says, "Those who brood much 
on the remote past or future, or stare long at the night sky, are less likely than others to be ardent or orthodox partisans. So we've had a good timing on that after our recent uh, episode about can political pundits create stories and culture. Um, that's, uh, you know, what, what's going to last longer, right? But it, it's, uh, can you switch between one mode and the other? Uh, as you've said before, Stephen, politics is kind of the, the all encompassing God sometimes in even in Christian culture, but certainly our, our secular media. So it's great to hear Lewis talk about that is sort of the value of it. One other thing I want to quote from here, just about the sort of the, the romantic uh, aspect of science fiction, Lewis says, is any man such a dull clod that he can look at the moon through a good telescope without asking himself what it would be like to walk among those mountains under that black crowded sky? So that that's really the heart of it for him is that science fiction is about imagining these other scenarios, these other experiences that that science is kind of bringing into our understanding. And, you know, Lewis couldn't have imagined like the James Webb telescope, which we're very blessed to get to see just amazing stuff through that. And, and yeah, science fiction is about wondering what it would be like to go explore that part of the cosmos or, you know, he talks about, or even the, the oceans or the center of the earth. And he, you know, mentions, uh, HG Wells books on that topic. And so Lewis had a very strong love for science fiction. He, he name checks a ton of books in this essay, Stephen. So it, it's just fun now to go back and read some of the same books he was reading and just to kind of be thinking, you know, how did this book hit him when he read it for the first time, when it was like a brand new story? It was so widely read. And this being a scholar of medieval literature and languages, he, he read very widely outside of his field. Uh, he not only knew a lot of these languages and, and taught them, but he also got involved in just general popular culture of its day. Now, I, it seems that he did search for quality stuff. And Zach, I have that essay too. He, he name checks actually uh, Brave New World in 1984, among many others. Like it's very clear that he was going after stuff that would be now considered even more classic than it was in its day. So uh, the man had good taste. So he favored these very grown up stories. You know, he, he wanted to pursue stories that were going to be about uh, timeless humanity. And yet the paradox there, not only between his love of science fiction and fantasy or fairy tales and the fact that he wrote in both, but that he also believed in children's stories. And I actually flip back a little bit in my copy of, I think, the collection that you're talking about. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from uh, his essay on three ways of writing for children. Uh, this is an incidental corrective to folks who assume, even now, Christians who assume uh, the assumption that uh, some of the secular and you know, highfalutin uh, academical sorts assumed back then that, you know, the fairy tales are just for children. But once you get older, you know, as Lewis says, uh, a man who admits that dwarfs and giants and talking beasts and witches are still dear to him in his 53rd year is now less likely to be praised for his perennial youth than scored and pitied for arrested development. In quote, I uh, should have said quote at the beginning there. You see some of this, uh, especially if you're a Christian, you see some of this even in certain um, church influencer types who will go after men who enjoy video games, for example. Now, I actually want to have a podcast episode about video games because it's a topic we've not explored. And it's a topic about which I've developed uh, some pretty firm opinions myself because I have to be told in my life, you know, hey, you're working too hard. 
You need to go play a video game. Like my wife is actually really, really helpful about that. And it's counterintuitive. And I'm guessing it may be the exception that proves the rule because I'm guessing a lot of people, not just men, but people are into things like video games. And then they get scorned by some church influencer types on social media or in their sermons that they are wasting away their lives playing video games. And I can't help but wonder if some of that criticism overlaps with the bad kind of criticism that Lewis talks about here. Uh, yes, you can get hooked on video games and waste your life. You can get hooked on anything and waste your life. But there can be a better reason to enjoy those things in which you are forgetting yourself and you're resting in a good gift of God. Human imagination, in this case, applied to uh, technology. Lewis says one of my favorite quotes here, quote, critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are in moderation healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. And here's the one that gets quoted often. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. End quote. Uh, that is uh, peak C.S. Lewis there uh, with some thoughts about human nature, but also more consistent thoughts about his take uh, on humility. I mean, this is the Lewis version of Jesus saying that only someone with the heart of a child can enter a kingdom, uh, can enter his kingdom. Uh, Lewis is speaking here about uh, enjoyment of the good gifts of God, you know, literature in a particular type of um, uh, child, uh, not childish, uh, but heart of a child type of story. And Lewis is saying, this actually helps keep you humble. This helps keep you from being so arrogant and self-important to suppose that oh, I'm an adult. I don't read those fairy stories. And I think that his wisdom is often missed even by Christians who like C.S. Lewis because they fancy him this adult scholar while also forgetting uh, the parts like this one where he is specifically extolling childlike wonder, uh, not just about apologetics, truth and doctrine and such about very Christian things but also about very simple things like fairy stories and uh, ancient mythologies and things like that. And this permeates Lewis's thinking so much, and I think it is very helpful. And Zach, you drew it out. Uh, this is something that Lewis uh, had that I almost wish we'd mentioned in our first episode, that if you're grounded in these types of human imaginations, then it's going to keep you from being that kind of harsh partisan. And even just this week after we recorded our episode, I've seen some examples of harsh partisanships on a very bad side. Um, and I don't want that for Christians or even for cultural conservatives. Uh, I would rather we be more like Lewis, uh, more humble, uh, more in wonderment about the world, uh, even as we critique what's wrong with it. And Lewis modeled that so well across all of his writing. Here's another quote, Stephen. This is from the main essay in this book called On Stories. And I want to get your opinion on this. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very simple thing he's trying to say, but it's, it's very eloquent in how he expresses it. Quote, nothing can be more disastrous than the view that the cinema can and should replace popular written fiction. The elements which it excludes are precisely those which give the untrained mind its only access to the imaginative world. There is death in the camera. Wow. 
Wow. So Lewis hated movies. He's a, <laughs> he's a Puritan, he, except he went to see movies on occasion. He's even been known to comment about some of them. But I don't think he or Tolkien were big fans of uh, you know, a certain Walt Disney, who was contemporaneous with both of them. Uh, what was your thought on that quote, Zach? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's Jerry Jenkins who has said that a novel it provides a theater in the mind that, you know, we, 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 we measure movie theaters by how big the screen is, or if it's 3d or 4d, um, if it's IMAX or Dolby Atmos or whatever, we, we have all these specs, but like a, a book that you see in your mind that you imagine it's, it's on the biggest screen possible. You know, it, it's, it's way bigger than what you could see at a movie theater. And, you know, you think of the scenes that you've, visualized from stories you've read they stick with you after all this time and so to uh you know th there's death in the camera like you said it you're, you're letting someone else do the imagining for you and you know i i've uh, i've mentioned before in this podcast that i've i've just canceled disney plus and said no thanks to more star wars stuff from disney and i've just been scooping up old star wars books from the um uh, ex the uh, expanded universe, and and so going going back to the uh, the old school books, uh, because those are going to let me imagine Star Wars in a way that even John Favreau, who I like, is is not going to be able to. It it's going to kill my imagination a little bit to let someone else visualize it for me. But you know, I I still love movies too. I I love. Uh, I, I'm excited for uh, Rebel Moon that's going to be coming out later by uh, Zack Snyder. So we'll, he's, he's not going to get the uh, Snyder universe, I guess, or the DC universe, Stephen. but Hey, Hey, don't speak good, that. Uh, don't, don't speak those words <laughs> of uh, cursing there. No, no, you need to, you need to have faith, brother. You need to manifest uh, the restoration of the Snyder verse. Well, in the meantime, we get this other Snyder verse. Now, you know, I wonder if Lewis at once may have been too pessimistic, but also too optimistic there, because the fact is that now we have such a glut of visual entertainment, especially thanks to the streaming revolution, uh, that it's become very clear, even after the apparent wrap up of the actor strike, uh, that a lot of these streaming companies were just locked in this arms race uh, to try to get the most and maybe even the best content, or at least the content that was going to be most talked about. And a lot of the studios I hear tell were actually uh, secretly grateful for the strike because this meant that they could slow down all of this um, expenses that they were putting into these shows. There's just too many of them. There's too much going on. And I'm not even talking about Marvel or Star Wars, the superhero movies, but that's certainly part of the problem. Uh, I think if Lewis had seen that, he may have been more pessimistic uh, because now you've just got content for content's own sake. But at the same time, there is good content there. There are great stories. And increasingly, uh, even some of the big franchise IP has been informed by great books. Uh, you name-checked my man Zack Snyder. Now, don't let's get a false impression here. I've never seen a single Zack Snyder movie apart from Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and Zack Snyder's Justice League. I may go watch the animated Owls one at some point, but frankly, the rest seem a little too violent and a little too dark uh, for me. I don't really care about, you know, zombies getting their heads ripped off. But when directors like him or Christopher Nolan or a lot of TV directors are on their game, uh, they're making visual entertainment with depth that I think Lewis, you know, with some practice may have appreciated. 
there's layers in some movies and some stories that can only be laid down by people who are familiar with literature and the humanities, uh, even in some superhero movies. Like even Joss Whedon, Boo Hiss, uh, was a uh, Shakespeare holic, and he was always putting in Shakespeare references and, and seeming to understand them. And he had also working with this kind of, you know, geek chic pop uh, sensibility, at least before he was right, I think, rightly taken out by Me Too accusation. So the best movie directors uh, may not necessarily be putting death in the camera lens. They may be reflecting some of the great books that they've read. And so a uh, bit of a side trail there, but it just illustrates, I, at least my view is that it illustrates that Lewis was working within his frame of reference. And if he was still around, I would love to know what he would think about popular culture and particularly his own place. Uh, in uh, putting together uh, the current scene of fantastical fiction, which we'll get to in chapter three. But if we're ready, we'll go in a moment to chapter two, but not before pausing for our second sponsor, author Phyllis Wheeler. Speaking of fantasy and speaking of fairy stories for kids like Lewis wrote, here is a series of adventure and time travel for ages eight to 11. The Guardians of Time series with book two just released, Secret of the Lost Dragons. Meet your award-winning, family-friendly book series, Guardians of Time by Phyllis Wheeler, in which Jake and Ava, age 11, search for their kidnapped dog who is now lost in time. They aren't alone, though. They have the help of a 700-year-old alchemist from the Guardians of Time Guild. Reader Caleb, age 11, had this to say, Great story, time traveling in a clock shop was interesting, cool, and funny. Stop by author Phyllis Wheeler's website for information and a special freebie, the prequel short story at phyllisweeler.com, P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-W-H-E-E-L-E-R.com. And special deal, the ebook for book one, The Dog Snatcher, is on sale for 99 cents at all outlets through December the 12th as book two makes its debut, Secret of the Lost Dragons. Get those links in the show notes or see the cover at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right, Zach, chapter two, what are C.S. Lewis's best nonfiction books? Now, here's where it gets more interesting. Some people don't uh, are, are not as familiar with these essays that Lewis wrote, which basically all put together make for good books. Uh, but now there's a little bit of difference here. Now we're talking about his nonfiction books uh, like um, Mere Christianity. Or, or not, um, not screw tape letters because that kind of counts as fantastical, doesn't it? Uh, what other books do I have here? So, Mere Christianity, uh, which is actually a collection of uh, radio um, broadcasts that were put together, The Problem of Pain, uh, The Abolition of Man. Zach, you've quoted a lot from The Abolition of Man. Hey, Zach, let's start there. Um, we haven't had we, we haven't had an Abolition of Man episode yeah. yet, but how was Lewis a prophet who should definitely be canonized by your denomination if they do that sort of thing for accurate prognosticators? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like I could read half of this in the Alex Jones voice uh, warning us about the technocrats and the bureaucrats and the globalists. They're making men without chests! <laughs> exactly. Um, he talks a lot about here the conditioners. That's Lewis's uh, term for it. Oh, man, there's so much. He says, the conditioners then are to choose what kind of artificial towel they will, for their own good reasons, produce in the human race. They are the motivators, the creators of motives. But how are they going to be motivated themselves? Yeah, so he, he talks about this whole idea of the Tao, like a, a universal ethic that's sort of written into the fabric of the universe. How Romans 1 talks about, you know, by looking at the creation, we can see that there's a creator. Uh, by looking at the way that men 
and women act morally, we can see that there is a moral law written into the the into human nature. But what Lewis was dealing with at the time that he wrote The Abolition of Man was sort of the beginnings of postmodernism and the the untethering from of morality from sociology, psychology, and in the humanities themselves, where this very materialistic view of man was ascendant. And so there was this whole group of people he calls the conditioners, which are trying to, you know, remake man and in their own sort of, you know, scientific image. And I'm breaking Godwin's law, but you know, the Nazis were, were all about this. Karl Marx was all, all about this, the, the Ubermensch idea and in the, you know, this delusion that you could just rewrite human nature and in, in people today that uh, think that, you know, biology can be hacked and, and we can just reprogram people uh, or we can use uh, algorithms like on TikTok to kind of repopulate people's minds with whatever nonsense. So, you know, Lewis really saw this coming and called it out. And then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but this, this essay or the, this book really became the basis for one of his science fiction books. And so it's, it's fascinating to see that kind of come through characters. Um, I'll be honest, the abolition of man, I, I read it with some friends and it was, it really took a lot of discussion to understand what he's saying. It's very academic. It, it's a little dense. I mean, and you know, and that's sometimes Lewis is hard anyway, just because of British English and just the, the issues of the day in the forties and fifties and whatever you, you know, wrote all his books, but he's dealing with a real crisis that was happening then. And and it's just weird, Stephen, because now it's like we we take a lot of that for granted that there are people like this. <laughs> yeah, we do. I think that abolition of man, would it be fair to say that it is basically a commentary on that hideous strength because he's exploring in a nonfiction way uh, some of the concepts uh, that form, you know, Lewis's take on a kind of a proto dystopian novel like that hideous strength is about a dystopia uh, averted. Uh, by this uh, mythological figure who arrives from Britain's storied past. And it, it's a very different uh, book. Now, Zach, I know that uh, actually you're, you, you've been more of a stand for that hideous strength. When I first read it, I didn't get it for some of the reasons that you mentioned. We'll talk about the Ransom Trilogy in a moment. But Abolition of Man, I think I was just old enough or maybe focused enough to start tracking with it. But you make me want to go back and read Abolition of Man again. Um, it is like, yeah, like you mentioned, like it is denser. Uh, it's not like mere Christianity, which, believe it or not, for folks at the time, it was written at the popular level. Uh, Lewis had a real heart for reaching the common man with these uh, heady theological concepts. But now, just because of changing tastes and reading levels, you know, all of his uh, books uh, seem to be written for uh, academical sorts. But for him, Abolition of Man was academical. Uh, so was a book that actually is rather um, lesser known called The Discarded Image. And the discarded image of the title uh, is actually medieval cosmology. Uh, this is Lewis talking about his field, uh, medieval languages and literature. And he's talking about uh, this idea of the spheres or the influences, the planets uh, that are associated with certain moods and colors and metals and motifs that figures all throughout medieval literature. And he says, if I remember it right, he says it's discarded because it's been all but forgotten. Uh, this whole system that developed uh, almost like a medieval series of memes. That was the pop culture back then among those writers. And, and Lewis is talking about it and saying that this has been lost. 
uh, you know, but here's what we lose with it. This kind of shared conception, uh, imagining what the universe is like outside of Earth. And some of that went away along with the Copernican revolution, you know. Uh, you now knew that Earth did not uh, reside at the center of the universe uh, with all the spheres rotating around it. You know, the sun at this uh, particular level kind of stuck in a rotating firmament, if I remember it right, and then kind of the star layer out there, and then, uh, you know, Mars here and Venus there. Lewis is saying, you know, yes, it's scientifically inaccurate, but it was kind of nice back then just to have everybody on the same page as regards to how the universe worked. And of course, he's, he's working from a, um, a, you know, a limited vantage there of, you know, Western European conceptions of all of those things. But uh, there's a wistfulness uh, in his material and also kind of something very different in which he is describing a thing that he would have been actually teaching people uh, as part of his uh, part of his day job. We think about Lewis, the author, but he was back then, you know, grading papers and giving lectures in the classrooms, uh, just like everybody else. Uh, I need to reread the discarded image, too. There's some other nonfiction books of his. I mean, obviously, Mere Christianity is great. Uh, I've read that several times or listened to it. Miracles I've read once or twice. Uh, the Problem of Pain is very good. It's, um, I mean, there's some stuff in The Problem of Pain I would actually disagree with theologically, but he has given it the old professor try, uh, which is wonderful to see. And uh, his answers are altogether biblical and very personal there. Um, I already mentioned Miracles, Discarded Image. There's his uh, autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, which, is, uh, which is great for understanding his backstory. You know, I've heard quotes from the four loves, and I have that concept in the back of my head, and I remember two of them, Agape and Filio. Uh, there's a couple of others, but Eros. Lewis is Eros, and, uh, yes, of course. Yeah, and um, yeah, Eros is the fun one. Well, they're all and, fun. And, and uh, parental love. Uh, that's right. I forget what that is. It's yeah. a Greek word. So there apparently is a quiz about this, but Lewis kind of goes through each one of those, and it it's uh, just that special way that he had of trying to find in literature and in these, you know, these ancient motifs, like lessons and applications for real life. I mean, four ways of loving, um, actually just thinking about different ways of loving is itself such a necessary corrective now where people say love is love, for example, and they don't make any distinctions between them, which is absurd. Uh, people love in different ways. You love this game. Uh, you love your wife or you love your husband, you love your kids, you love your dog. Those are different kinds of loves. You love your country. And of course, above all, you should be loving Jesus Christ. Very different kinds of love. Even just the very idea of distinguishing between them uh, is uh, extremely valuable now. And then I think, though, I would answer Zach, and I'm curious, which is uh, what do you think is C.S. Lewis's best nonfiction books? But right now I'm favoring the books that I've read only once or maybe haven't read at all. I have here a copy of The Pilgrim's Regress, one of his first books that that's he wasn't fiction, too fond right? of. Oh, well, that's right. It is fiction, so it should yeah. go in the next chapter. But I haven't read it. I also have Letters to an American Lady, and I have a couple of those big, thick books edited by the late Walter Hooper about Lewis's letters. Um, I think there's a third volume, which I don't have. Um, I don't even remember whether I've read all of them, but I'm sure there are treasures throughout. Uh, so probably I would answer my own question. The best nonfiction book by C.S. Lewis is the one that I'm not as familiar with or just haven't read yet. Yeah. Uh, I'll go into mere Christianity in a minute. Cause I have, again, just a million highlights um, in this book. I, I read this as a very young Christian and it was just wonderful, but I, I want to go back to the abolition of man. And, th and this is one of those quotes that you can, you can, well, you can hear in an Alex Jones uh, voice. He says, quote, man's conquest of nature, if the dreams of some scientific planners are realized, 
means the rule of a few hundreds of men over billions upon billions of men. There neither is nor can be any simple increase of power on man's side. Each new power won by man is a power over man as well. Each advance leaves him weaker as well as stronger. In every victory, besides being the general who triumphs, he is also the prisoner who follows the triumphal car. You know, this is a theme, Stephen, I, I keep running into in my life where the more incredible and complicated technology gets, the more weak and dependent we become. Um, the, the more we are completely, you know, bumfuzzled to, to do anything when it breaks. I've, uh, I've helped some people in recent years whose cars, uh, like the battery died or something, and there was no possible way to jumpstart these cars that have um, a very complicated new type of ignition. And I'm not talking about electric cars. I'm talking about gas cars. Uh, but so, sometimes something goes wrong in these ignition systems, and it is literally impossible to just jumpstart the car, you know, with, with jumper cables. Uh, and that's just one of many things. I mean, we, we've seen these, um, you know, here in Austin, we've seen these catastrophic failures of our, of our water system, of our electrical system. And, and so we, we gain these powers, but then they gain a power over us. But also how he says, you know, just the sinful nature of man uses that power to, to gain control over other people. Uh, I'm thinking of the fact now, Stephen, that our whole society is going cashless. There are restaurants that will not take cash. Um, and it's, it's not just like, you know, we're, we're headed towards what Europe is trying to do, this central bank digital currency where very few people can control what you do with your money with the touch of a button. You know, they can just delete your account or whatever uh, from a computer far away. And, that, and that's just one of many of these things. And so Lewis saw this in, uh, you know, what, more than 60 years ago, he saw how technology was kind of going this way. And, you know, <laughs> The, the context of this is he's, he's talking about the wireless. You know, what, what does that mean? It means radio. <laughs> well, now we expand that definition quite a lot because everything yeah. is wireless right down to the Wi-Fi that we're using right now to communicate. So, hey, it's not all bad, but you probably got this podcast over the wireless, which, by the way, drop the R there uh, in order yeah. <laughs> to say it the, the proper British way, the wireless uh, I'm ready to talk about some fantasy now. That nonfiction was really discouraging, uh, Zach, yeah. but it's encouraging to know that someone so grounded in the humanities, in literature, could be so awake to the dangers, but also the benefits of technology and societal progress. And for those who think that there is uh, no benefit in these kinds of studies, ask how C.S. Lewis got so smart and so prophetic. Lewis understood more of the patterns of human nature by reading old books than people understand just by reading uh, the stuff that people write today. Uh, extremely prescient. And how did he get there? He read old books himself. Yeah. One quick thing. I'm, I'm just going to summarize from Mere Christianity. I, I can't find it off the top of my head here. But something that he wrote in here has always stuck with me, even 25, 30 years later since I've read it. It's when he's going through um, the Beatitudes and he says, where Christ says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the point he makes is that for some people it's Christ or nothing because they, they come very empty 
to Christ without a lot of just internal stability or morality of their own. And, and man, that, that, that was exactly me. Now you'd known me in middle school and high school from the outside. I, I had it together. I was, I was a tag student, straight A's involved in sports and, and whatnot, had friends, but man, on the inside, I was very, very hollow, uh, walking in some very dark places, uh, with the occult and with a lot of very troubled thoughts. Um, and I, I just, I felt so very lonely because of a lot of things that went on when I was very young. And, but when I found Christ, Stephen, it, it was, it was so immediately powerful to me the the feeling of God's love and the nearness of his presence in the fact that God calls himself my father and how Jesus says, I, you're not my servants, you're my friends. I deeply, deeply felt that friendship from Jesus right from the beginning. And so, and Lewis perfectly touched on that, that it, it's Christ or nothing for people like this. Later on in uh, Screwtape Letters, I'll just reference this really quick, but he says, well, uh, um, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all and more amusing. <laughs> and you know, so I read these books kind of at the same time, and those thoughts have always kind of stuck with me that, you know, the greatest danger for me is, is just sort of making Christianity just some kind of side hobby rather than like the core of my life, because I I've seen what my life is like without Christ. And it's a gigantic, big fat mess. So the the worst thing I could do is just try to just put Christianity in its place in my, in my daily life. I'm not saying I'm, I'm great at always making every decision and living every moment for Christ. But the point is that like, it's, it's central to who I am. Like I'm, I'm really just nothing without him. So I, I really appreciate his thoughts about what it means to be poor in spirit. Whether it's the simple truths of the gospel or the complex truths about human nature, Lewis nonfiction has something for everyone. But of course, a lot of people know Lewis mainly for his Chronicles of Narnia, his Ransom trilogy, and several other works of fantastical fiction. We'll get to that in chapter three. But first, we read a lot of Lewis books in our third sponsor, which be us once more the Lorehaven Guild, which is our castle in the cloud, our Discord community that you can join and get an invitation code exclusively by subscribing at lorehaven.com slash subscribe. I can predict that we will have at least one more Lewis book uh, in one of our monthly book quests coming up next year, 2024. Uh, just a hint here, the past couple of Januaries, we've done uh, Narnia book quests. It uh, seems to be a developing tradition. So why not at least uh, finish out that initial trilogy that Lewis wrote, uh, reading up in publication order, of course. Uh, that will likely start in January, Lord willing. So to get in on that and any other book quests that we're doing, go to lorehaven.com slash subscribe. And then you can join the Lorehaven Guild where you also get some exclusive behind the scenes uh, stuff, a preview of upcoming attractions at Lorehaven. You can talk about these podcast episodes and just join, uh, I think, over 270 heroes now that I've seen. A curated community of folks who believe in the Lorehaven mission of exploring fantastical stories for God's glory. All right, Zach, speaking of which, chapter three, what are C.S. Lewis's best fantastical stories? Narnia, says everybody, and I say mm -hmm. it too. So, okay. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on to our mission update. No, of course, I'm going to double back. <laughs> And double back, we still got a little time here. 
Uh, yes, Narnia is great. Uh, so is the Ransom trilogy, and I call it that because of Doctor Elwin Ransom. Which, by the way, back when I was on Narnia Web, more often that was my handle, Doctor Elwin Ransom. That was the name that my wife uh, first knew me by. So I'm a big fan, uh, certainly of the the first two books, uh, which I've read quite a few times each. I still need to read that hideous strength again, and then we need to do an episode of the podcast about the Ransom trilogy with emphasis, maybe on that hideous strength. But I do. It's weird. I like out of the silent planet a lot and it's much more uh, kind, of, kind of get that pulpy goodness so like a more developed uh, s- classic sci-fi feel uh there's like rivets in that one and so I, I think it was orson scott card who said if it's got rivets on the cover it's sci-fi if it's got uh, trees on the cover then it's fantasy well in that case what in the world are out of the silent planet and paralandra because the first one's got rivets and the second one's got trees on a floating island i like out of the silent planet but i also really 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 like paralandra I think in my thinking about quotes uh, and symbology and uh, and just deep biblical thought, um, I think of Paralandra. So I may have Silent Planet as my favorite, but Paralandra is the best, uh, which is kind of an odd distinction to make. And then I need to go back and read that hideous strength. But another book I need to reread is Lewis's uh, Greek mythology retelling. And I know a lot of our listeners are, are perk up with this. Because a lot of people think that uh, we don't talk enough about, uh, just Christians don't talk enough about, till we have faces. Uh, Lewis is retelling from the female perspective of the older sister of uh, Psyche uh, as she's uh, falling in love with Cupid and, and how, what effect that has on, uh, on her older sister. And uh, it's extremely pagan feeling, which may be why some Christians are not as comfortable about this. This book makes me think more about the ending of Prince Caspian where you have all of these uh, Greek mythological creatures uh, dashing about. Uh, But here, this is about uh, self-image. This is about uh, humility. It's about humans as compared to the the gods on Mount Olympus. I've only read it once, so I'm kind of barely capturing the broadest themes of this. I need to read it again. And I know that someone has proposed having a book quest about it at some point, in which case I may join in uh, at that time. And, uh, and read it through and probably get a lot more out of it reading in community yeah. because I'm guessing there's a lot of depth here connected with Greek mythology uh, and even uh, even the female experience uh, that I wasn't connecting as much with in my first read through. But I think a, a second read through it, I'll get a lot more out of it just as the screw tape letters improves, like, you know, the half dozen times that I've read it. Uh, the things got layers. You'll always get something new out of the screw tape letters, some fantastic quotes in that one. And Lewis's other standalone, uh, fantastical books. Oh, the great divorce. I absolutely love the great divorce. So much good stuff in there, uh, with a lot more eternal perspective. And, and unlike some of Lewis's other fantastical books, uh, he just gives away the code for the great divorce. He's not claiming that this is what heaven is really like. He's saying, no lad. Uh, this story is just a picture of the daily decisions that we have on this earth kind of projected outward into this uh, eternal dreamscape. And there's so much imagery there about sanctification and dying to sin. Um, oh, man, I will forever remember the guy who has the little lizard lust creature on his shoulder. And then the shining one who's basically imported wholesale from Pilgrim's Progress comes along and says, you need to let me kill it. And the man who kind of wants it killed, but kind of doesn't like resists and resists and resists until he breaks. And it's just such a picture of the overwhelming, 
one could even say irresistible grace of God, overwhelming the enslaved will of the sinner and destroying the sin, uh, which then is transformed. uh, And the person is transformed into a saint and is then weeping and thanking uh, this uh, this good angelic type uh, entity for delivering him and can then go further up and further in a phrase from the last battle that's not in the great divorce. But man, I love the great divorce. Now I want to read that one again, too. So many C.S. Lewis books, so little time. Yeah. So I actually read Till We Have Faces in, gosh, middle school, I think. Uh, Middle school? What type of special? Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) It might have been ninth grade, but I think it was around seventh or eighth grade. And I barely remember it. I just remember the scene where the one girl stabs her own arm (laughs) for some reason. and. Yeah, I'd forgotten I about remember. that one, although it seems kind of memorable. Yeah, I, I don't remember a whole much else from it. So, you know, I keep seeing the bookstore and think, oh, maybe I should read that again. But I don't know. I got I, two copies. You want to yeah, borrow well, one? Well, there we go. I guess there yeah. we go. Um, How did I get two copies? I, I have two copies of Lewis books. I think I just, <laughs> I forget that I have like oh, Christianity already got, and then I get another copy. We got three or four copies of all the Narnia books. But um, the Screwtape Letters was arguably my my first Christian novel to read as a Christian. Uh, Cause I read that late in high school, I believe and then, or early college. I I've read this. I can't even remember how many times I've read it, Stephen. When I was a missionary overseas, this was one of the few books I took with me. In fact, I had to, if, if you, you can see this, but I had to cover it in this sort of uh, wrapping paper. We had to kind of disguise the, the Christian books that we took with us. Oh, you had to fear smuggle of, uh, it in. Okay. Getting caught, you know, and that sort of thing. Well, that just um, means it's part of the canon of scripture, yeah, doesn't it? Because right. <laughs> those the tyrannical governments don't like Lewis or the Bible. So they're basically the yeah. same thing. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, so many moments though, from the screw tape letters that, that stick with me. It, it's sometimes the really simple ways that the, the demons are frustrated or trying to tempt uh, they're patient. Um, one instance I think about a lot is like, you know, screw tape says to a wormwood, you know, how could you let him go for a walk or read a book he actually liked, you know, <laughs> and it's just those simple pleasures in life often point, uh, point us back to God. You know, I think about how I, I can just be lost in anxiety about something and then I'll just go outside on a walk and like, everything is fine. Um, sometimes these things just get so blown up in our heads. We, we we can get caught in these endless cycles of like trying to be too humble or or getting proud or or that sort of thing. There are so many just great moments in this. Um, another one is uh, danger and how he says uh, this is indeed is probably one of the enemy's motives for creating a dangerous world, a world in which moral issues really come to the point. He sees as well as you do that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point which means at the point of highest reality. Max McLean, who, who has produced a number of dramatic adaptations of C.S. Lewis books, uh, Naomi and I went and saw his production of the Screwtape Letters. It's basically just a one-man play, reading out all these letters. And Max McLean said that um, people often call the Screwtape Letters a reverse devotional. <laughs> because you can, you can sort of get at the truth through the things that screw tape argues against but in this case he actually says something pretty true like just directly about courage and i i think about that that line about courage all the time but you know in terms of the other novels that he's written uh, yeah that hideous strength love it 
I, I just absolutely love it. The the Merlin, the angels, the other the elephants, there's a lot of wacky stuff in it. But it's not Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy wacky. It's not Doctor Who wacky, which Stephen, I think I've realized you and I have different tastes in comedy. I, I like very dark comedy. You like kind of wacky comedy, like uh, One Piece. And that's just uh, just different from my taste, I think. I like there, wacky comedy if it's paired with thought-provoking darkness, oddly okay. enough. So, so yeah, maybe maybe a little disparate there. But for example, is that you like AI humor, yeah. whereas I'm just thinking about the social implications oh. of all those poor starving artists who are being put out of their jobs. So. I mean, I I love The <laughs> Simpsons. You know, I I used to like The Onion before they were they they stopped being funny. Of course, The Babylon Bee. Um, mm. I, I didn't really get into Family Guy, but anyway, I like all of those, that type of humor. Lewis is very earnest, and I, I think that's what I really liked about that hideous drink. There definitely are some funny parts in it. Like I always think of the, the spell that Merlin casts, and he makes everyone talking nonsense, and even r- they're writing nonsense, and <laughs> the one guy's like, Bumble, b- Bumbleman, Bumbleman, <laughs> I'm trying to say gentleman. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a re- it's a return to the babble curse. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it, it's Lewis again kind of blending that uh, you know medieval myth uh, with a, a biblical true myth, uh, which was his sweet spot, which I think a lot of Christians can learn from. And, and just the way that these you know technocrats are upended by this nonsense kind of magic by Merlin, that was really fascinating to me. Uh, and then there's this angel basically that shows up at the end, and that's crazy. So it, it's a very great blend of science fiction and theology. I, I did like the other books. Apparently, Andrew was the harder one for me to get through. Fascinating. I yeah. I, I kept putting it down. I don't know why. I think part of that is just the reading experience. There were a lot of very long paragraphs. Oh, a lot huge, of description. huge. Yes. Yeah. Well, particularly the dialogue between Ransom and the unmanned. Now, I like that part. Yes. Oh, that's when it, That's when I got hooked. Chilling. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. So, but there's a, there is some, you have to swim through some, yeah, some stuff to get there. Uh, and then there's some weird stuff in there too. You know, there's, there's a naked lady running around and they're commenting about it. And one of Ransom's favorite quotes for me is like, like he, he talks to Weston, like Weston, like, yeah, I'm not just off on the Island, you know, with the beautiful native native girl, like nothing's going to happen. You may as well think about going to the Niagara Falls and making tea from the water. Like that's just absurd. Uh, little moments like that are just so quotable and so memorable and, and so practical because that's Lewis like emphasizing true beauty as opposed to this cheapened form of it that gets twisted around. It becomes the sin of lust, like so practical and so deeply human. But it's also probably why there's never going to be a Christian film adaptation. But there could be an audio drama. (laughs) Uh, I see. I would love to see or listen to rather before I die, a full cast audio drama. That would be of the ransom trilogy. I wish this focus on the the family family. radio theater, bring it back out of mothballs. You know, but we'll do a fundraiser (laughs) at least the ransom trilogy. I mean, they already adapted uh, the Narnia series, all seven of them. Oh, we've listened to all those. They're fantastic. And Aslan, you know, all all thanks to Sir David Suchet, but he, he overacts in the first few but then it kind of levels off and he's he's a terrific yeah. gasland it's a terrific series but you, you could get douglas gresham to host it and yeah do do the uh do the ransom trilogy audio drama they did do however the screw tape letters audio drama starring andy circus oh using, really oh wow you didn't know that okay no, yeah no. I didn't. andy circus is using his um 
Uh, oh, oh, what's the name of the Star Wars prequel guy who gets killed in The Last Jedi? Supreme Leader Snoke. When Supreme Leader Snoke comes on screen, I'm like, oh, I recognize that. It's not only Andy Serkis, but it's screw tape. <laughs> and so he was screw tape before he was Supreme Leader Snoke. Um, kind of weird collision of worlds there. Uh, no, Circus is a fantastic screw tape. It's a great cast. It's a it's a faithful adaptation that kind of adds a little bit to the human backstory. But of course, you know, Andy Circus talks a lot. Uh, and you actually get to hear him at one point transform into a rather large centipede. So many quotes from screw tape. I, I think for my part, I may wrap up there. Just I can literally shut my eyes and think about Lewis's turns of phrase, even in the introduction where he says, I have no intention of disclosing uh, how this diabolical correspondence fell into my hands. <laughs> and he starts talking about some of the pictures that people have in their minds of the devils and how Lewis uh, get, gets asked a lot about uh, why he chose to portray them this way. And he says, well, it's because I don't think that the worst evils that humans have done are in those sordid dens of crime that uh, Dickens loved to paint. He said, like, my symbol for hell is basically a thoroughly nasty business concern uh, or this uh, disgusting bureaucracy where there's backstabbing and people talking behind one another's back and trying to climb on each other to get ahead. Lewis said, that's my picture for the demons. And man, Lewis said it was really hard to get myself into that creative frame to think inside out or, or backwards or the reverse devotional. Like you said, Zach, I think Lewis actually mm -hmm. explained like, well, that's why there aren't going to be any more screw tape letters. Lots of, I think, uh, Christians who are better than I am find a growth in sanctification, becoming more like Jesus through reading the Puritans. But I find growth in sanctification by reading the screw tape letters because in yes. moments of anger or depression or discouragement or uh, even what Lewis creatively calls the gluttony of delicacy, mm. I think of the screw tape reference points all the time. Or even the pride thing, like you mentioned, Zach, uh, screw tape asks Wormwood, Wormwood, uh, you got a problem. Your patient has become humble. And screw tape says, have you drawn his attention to the fact? <laughs> Screwtape then goes on to say uh, that if you are a really clever tempter, you can make the human uh, self-aware about his humility and uh, induce the human to say, by Jove, I'm being humble. Uh, and then if you become aware that you're being arrogant about being humble, you can become proud of that. And then so on as you please. It's and then a vicious uh, cycle, vicious know. cycle. And then screw tape says, but Wormwood don't push it too far. In which case he'll become self-aware of this whole cycle, in which case he will laugh at you and go to bed. Um, <laughs> by the way, Andy circus delivers that line perfectly. And, and so many others. So, uh, yeah. we could do a whole episode about screw tape letters as well. Uh, we're just kind of setting ourselves up for a whole series here. Uh, maybe someday. What about his short story, The Dark Tower? Did you ever read that? I've not read that one. Okay. Um, I, and I've isn't it interesting either. that there's also a story by Stephen King I've heard called yes. The Dark Tower, and I've not right. read that either. So who who did The Tower Darkest? Uh, I guess that remains to be seen. And it was kind of like an unfinished tale where I think there's parts of it that are missing when they when they published it. So it's kind of weird in that way. It's like you said, it's it, it was published in 1977, so over a decade after he passed away. And another thing is the, uh, the short story that he wrote as a child called Boxen. Published oh, that was the proto Narnia he created with yeah. his brother. Yes. So I, I haven't read that. I, I don't even have a copy of that one, but I, I've read about it and yeah, it's just, you know, he was always a storyteller from a very young age. So I, I need to read, um, I think I want to read the great divorce next in terms of the, 
the fiction. I'm I'm slowly reading through Narnia with my kids. Uh, we've listened to all of them, like you said, those those audiobooks. Those are great for road trips. Um, see, I and I think I read The Silver Chair as a kid. I I have some kind of vague memories of it. Um, but yeah, I I could I could read the Screw Tape Letters every single day and never get tired of it. It's just so fantastic. What's wonderful too is that if you have a hankering for some Lewis and you just got about five or ten minutes to spare, you don't have to read a whole book. You can go and read one of those essays. I think actually, Zach. Now I'm going to go back and pull uh, pull up some of those essays that uh, all of a sudden are timely again. Lewis wrote an essay called "Why I Am Not a Pacifist," and he also wrote an essay called "The Dangers of National Repentance," both of which are extremely relevant to some current events going on. Uh, Lewis lived through two wars and fought in the first one, and definitely had some opinions about that. Being a author, speaker, broadcaster at the time of World War II, uh, he was tracking some things that really we should look back and wonder at the wisdom that he picked up during that era, derived in scripture as well as his uh, broad knowledge of the humanities. Well, in closing, consider this quote from the Screw Tape Letters, my dear Wormwood. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces, while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. So to you, our dear listener, if the world has not ended yet, uh, it may be getting closer based on this uh, prophecy of C.S. Lewis, but we would like to know what is your favorite essay nonfiction book or fantasy story that Lewis wrote. Send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment anywhere you find Lorehaven on social media. We would love to know what are the words of C.S. Lewis that have stood out in your mind uh, over the years. Going to our Lorehaven mission update. Now we took a break from our podcast last week, but now we are back. Uh, we'll have at least three more episodes. In fact, actually just three more episodes uh, throughout the month of December. And then we'll have a Christmas break as well. We get two holiday breaks a year, but otherwise we put out a new episode every Tuesday and you can get notified whenever there's a new one by subscribing free lorehaven.com. You can then select a, whether you want to know about new reviews, new podcast episodes, new articles, or new news such as Marion Jacobs' uh, quick uh, hit on uh, Journey to Bethlehem, the uh, new uh, nativity musical that I think we had some high hopes for, but uh, Marion was not a huge fan. She appreciated some elements, and, and yet she was very honest about some of her thoughts as a fan of biblical fiction and as a fan of musicals, including some musicals that other people don't like. Uh, since uh, putting up this uh, new story, this on-screen story, I've, I've also seen the movie, and... Um, yeah, uh, enough said. Uh, I think I'm looking forward to uh, the chosen uh, holiday special this year. Uh, I can't say holiday special, Zach, because it sounds like I'm talking about the Star Wars holiday <laughs> special. But the chosen does good holiday specials, and yet Dallas Jenkins, uh, the chosen uh, founder, was also uh, very, very complimentary about this movie. So uh, very classy there. Uh, but uh, we felt it was important to, to have an honest review there. Uh, we have uh, those news posts every once in a while, but uh, every Friday when we can, we have new reviews of Christian-made fantastical books, the best ones we can find. Our last one was of the fantasy The Mermaid's Tale, and we'll have a few others coming up, some Christmassy, wintry stories that we've found uh, that will help you celebrate the season as we move into Christmas magic. 
just subscribe for you at Lorehaven and you can look for those new reviews. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Lorehaven on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And of course, if you subscribe free, you get that exclusive invitation code to the Lorehaven Guild and you can get an advance jump on your New Year's resolution to read more books in the new year. If you start early, it doesn't count as a New Year's resolution, so you don't have that stigma attached to it. Speaking of the holiday season, next on Fantastical Truth, it is indeed the season for Christmas magic. And we are planning three final episodes for our 2023 season. We're still having those ideas come together, but I'm guessing those will include, but maybe not be limited to, topics like these. What did C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien think about the modern Christmas celebration? I mentioned that earlier. What should you give your children as the most precious gift of the holiday season? Video games. And this is now the 20-year anniversary of the final Lord of the Rings film, Return of the King, which released in December of 2003. How does that wonderful film hold up 20 years later? And some other thoughts about uh, the Lord of the Rings film series. Meanwhile, C.S. Lewis, we love him. We think you should do. He wasn't perfect. We joke about him being a uh, canon. He's not canon. Scripture is canon. But Lewis loved the Bible as one of his, in fact, his top favorite old book. He read a lot of old books, but it was his regard for the scripture above all uh, that made him so biblical uh, and altogether faithful and so worth reading now, whether it's uh, his nonfiction essays, his nonfiction books, or his fantastical stories. We hope and pray that you will read them all or explore them uh, by way of those who have read and appreciated them as we continue to seek and find Christ's fantastical truth.